Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani. Hi, welcome to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm Sonia Estrasoltani, the Editor-in-Chief at Rappaport, and my guest today is Tina Smith. Hi, Tina. How are you? Good morning. So happy to be here. I'm very happy to because Tina started vintage jewelry business in Boston. It's a beautiful boutique that she will tell us a bit more about later after a career in finance. So actually, she's quite new to the vintage jewelry sector, but not so as a dealer, but not new because she was a collector for many years and had a big passion for vintage jewelry. So Tina, tell us, how did you make the transition from from being on Wall Street to opening your vintage jewelry store in Boston? Well, I finished my career as an investor on Wall Street and I had the opportunity to open a business in an area that I loved, which of course was going to be vintage jewelry because I had been an avid collector for many decades. And it's been a wonderful change. The business has taken off far more than I had originally thought. So I'm working harder, learning more, but just having so much fun. So some of the skills that I used when I was at business school at Harvard and then afterwards working for some of the Wall Street firms was, you know, the evaluation of which stock would be the best stock to put in a private client's portfolio. And much of that rigor and analysis and comparative research is the same when I'm putting together a collection for a client or even buying one piece. You know, if somebody wants to buy a retro bracelet from the 1940s, which one of the retro bracelets out there is the best value for the client and offers the best aesthetic value also for the client? And so we want people to love what they own, but we also go through a rigorous process that mimics what I did on Wall Street in order to find something that we believe is the best piece for that client. That's interesting. And for someone, for example, would start as a vintage dealer, what kind of skills do you think you need to have? What do you see as a newcomer to the scene? What other skills do you, would you recommend to develop? to hopefully that they have before they get into the business? Well, that's an interesting question. And I believe that many skills can be learned. So the way I would approach this question is maybe not skills, but prerequisites. Mm-hmm. And I have three. I would say you have to love what you do. And I would say that no matter what you're doing, whether you're going to get into vintage jewelry or whether you're going to become like a physician and, you know, whatever kind of physician you want to be, you've got to love what you do. The second is have curiosity because vintage jewelry touches on so many other areas that you have to be interested in learning about. For example, world history, what was happening in the world at the time this piece was made? That influences the materials, the design, maybe the motifs that were used in certain jewelry. You have to know about gemology. You have to know what is the best color of an emerald. You have to know where they come from. And you also have to know the styles, makers, and periods of jewelry. So it's a never-ending educational process. 
And it's important to have the curiosity that can make that a pleasurable experience. And finally, I would say you must have a good work ethic because any business is always harder than you think. Yes. And what what did you learn since you started your business? If you tell us when you opened your business as well in, in Boston, it's a few years, very recent. Well, yes, the store opened a year ago, but we've been in business as a private jeweler for about four years prior. But the store definitely opened up a new world for us. Although we have a beautiful website, tinasmithjewelry.com, and we also our partners with First Dibs and we've been on Moda Operandi. So we have a lot of distribution channels, but you're right. The boutique has only been open just about a year. Really, the, I would say, and I think the biggest thing that I have learned, it kind of touches on my previous answer in that you must keep learning because there is a never ending amount of knowledge that you can use to make yourself a better purchaser of treasure gems, and also a better seller to your clients. And people have to remember that you may be competing against dealers or retailers who are fifth generation in this business or people with 40 years experience. So it's important to try and make yourself and continue your education in any way possible. And apart from the education, once you have this or once you have a vision, I know you have a personal, beautiful collection of vintage jewelry, a lot of it with meaningful uh, stories to each piece. But what would you say makes a good, solid collection to showcase when you start in this business? Well, I mean, I think that there are several good answers to that question, but my answer is going to be what I chose. And I think that history shows that it's been successful. We focus on rare and unique pieces that are signed by the master jewelers of the 20th and 21st century. So we want to offer pieces that are not available elsewhere. That's really our competitive advantage. But I'm sure that there are other folks out there running vintage jewelry, you know, very successful dealers or retailers who may decide that there's a different period of jewelry that they prefer or they may do it a different way. So I think there are many, many ways to be successful, but this is the way that we've chosen. And how do you source the jewelry for your store in Boston? Well, this is another thing that as you go along in this business, your network of sources becomes larger. And so we buy from private sources, jewelry houses themselves, dealers, estates, and auctioneers around the world. So last year I was in Italy. I wish I were in Italy this year too, but unfortunately not. But someone said to me, oh, you must go visit this incredible old man who has this incredible collection of Bulgari jewels in Rome. And so I went to visit this gentleman and he did indeed have an incredible collection. And so That's how you grow your network. And that's how you learn by talking to this old gentleman who'd been in the business for 50 years. And so it's a very exciting business and you've got to like keep your mind open to meeting new people and, you know, to learning new things. That sounds lovely. That sounds like it was a treasure trove that you found in Rome. Yeah, exactly. 
And there's something also very interesting about your store, apart from being a beautiful setup and beautiful decor, it, that you have a female-only, women-only team working with you. Do you think it brings something else to the clients, well, mostly women? It kind of just happened this way that we have an all-women. It was not really something that we had planned. But we've been in business now for almost five years, and it just kind of happened that the women were really pulling their weight. And we had a couple of gentlemen who have moved on to happy places. But yeah, we think that most vintage jewelry was made for women to wear. So when we examine a potential acquisition, we look at it as if we were adding that piece to our own jewelry boxes. So for us, you know, we ask these questions, how comfortable is it to wear? Does it fit well? Does it lay flat? If it's a necklace, is it easy to put on and take off? So it's a perspective that men don't have. And what was I right to say that most of your customers are women? Yes, most of our customers are women, although we are starting to carry some men's jewelry, a beautiful array of signed cufflinks and uh, signet rings and things like that. But 90% of our customers are female and many of them buy for themselves. I would say the vast majority of our clients buy jewelry for themselves. I've mentioned it a few times already, but you have an absolutely exquisite boutique in, in Boston. What was your vision when you set it up, when you wanted to decorate, how you wanted to display the jewelry in it for people who haven't been to the boutique yet? And uh, we'll share some pictures on the website for them, but just to, to give them a feel for how to best display uh, vintage jewelry? Well, we have a beautiful space on Newbury Street, which is the main shopping street in Boston, comparable to Madison Avenue in New York. And we have a ground floor, a very long and thin room with a big bay window in the front and a bay window in the back that we believe at one point in 19th century was a drawing room for an old Bostonian family. And we've set it up as an old style salon. So we have a living room in the back bay with beautiful upholstered furniture, some vintage, well, rare antique chairs, all of our furniture we've imported. So we have beautiful lighting, art deco lighting from Lalique, and we have a beautiful chandelier from Italy and Murano, you know. Grounding the room is a table that we imported from Italy with rare inlaid woods. We have a one-of-a-kind coffee table uh, made by Jake Phipps that has this very generous gold coil at the base that almost reminds one of a gold chain. So we really want people to come that to we're a destination for many people. Our space is intimate, it's friendly, all the cases are custom made. We want people to come to us and feel like they can relax, enjoy looking at the jewelry, and also enjoy learning about the jewelry. Actually, the learning part, I know it's very important for you that you have this beautiful space in which you can host 100 people, I think. Yes. And how do you, um, what do you offer to this audience of people who want to learn more about vintage jewelry? Well, I mean, we operate on the basis that a well-educated consumer makes the best client. You know, just as an example, we had a woman from another country who was interested in two pieces, sight unseen, did not go through first dibs, but came directly to us and asked probably 
55 questions before she felt comfortable paying for the two pieces and having them shipped to her. And she kept apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. And I said, do not apologize. You know, we are here because we can answer those questions. We want to answer those questions. And they're met, that is a differentiating point for Tina Smith Jewelry. We know our pieces and we are happy to demonstrate that, you know, working with visitors, with clients, with prospective clients. And we want people to be able to ask questions. So in that regard, we offer a number of evening events in the gallery that add a bit of education about certain aspects of our collection. So for example, in the fall, we had Tom Heyman of Oscar Heyman come Emily Stroyer, who is the jewelry curator at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and whose predecessor had written the coffee table book about the firm Oscar Heyman. And they had a lively discussion talking about the history of the Heyman firm, iconic pieces, and some of the pieces that we actually have as part of our collection. And it was oversubscribed. We probably had 150 people in the room. It was very interesting, fun. People enjoyed it. We had uh, Ruth Peltison come with a bunch of David Webb pieces. She wrote the definitive book about David Webb, and she talked about the history of the firm, the fact that he died so early, you know, how the firm had come through various hands to where it is today. And also she spoke about some of the very famous collections that David Webb still offers. And upcoming, starting October 1st, we are hosting Michelle Finnamore, who is the former fashion and textile curator at the Museum of Fine Arts. And she is going to be curating in a very serious way, a show called Jewelry as Fashion as Jewelry. And it really celebrates the embellished clothing that goes with certain pieces of jewelry. And so she's going to be looking at starting in about 1920 with the Art Deco period, she's going to be dressing a number of mannequins and selecting certain of our jewels that go with those clothes. And many of the clothes are coming from private sources around the world. So this is the first time that they will be seen in public other than on the person that bought them and wore them for the first time. So it's going to run through uh, the end of November. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a very unique thing, probably the first time in ever, certainly in Boston, that there's ever been a collaboration between a scholar of Michelle's level with a jewelry retailer like ourselves. That sounds fantastic. It opens on the 1st of October. Yes. October 1st through the end of November for people who have lucky enough to be in Boston. Yes. And we're going to have a video of us, of Michelle and I walking through the exhibit that will be available on our website, tinasmithjewelry.com. That's something actually that I wanted to ask you as well about the importance of your digital presence, because the website was created before you had the boutique. And this year, so many things have moved to digital. I guess you were better prepared with the closures, the lockdown, and people not traveling as much as they used to. How did you see the relation with your clients? You know, I have to say that business has been booming for us. And we were already, as you clearly indicated, had a beautiful website. 
And we were already on first dibs, which I think is an important thing for a vintage dealer. There are a lot of great products on first dibs. So you're going to have very good company for your exquisite pieces, but it also gets a lot of views from all over the world. So we were already doing things digitally that, you know, that certainly came in handy with the COVID closures. We've been running, you know, Zoom appraisals so that if somebody wants a, it's really an evaluation of a piece that they own, we do that for free for people. We've had meetings where we've shown jewelry to clients digitally. So we were kind of already going in that direction. But I think that the people who have really been hurt are people without social presence. We also have a very big thrust into our Instagram, which is at Tina Smith Jewelry. And we try and make it fun. We show some products, but it's not product after product after product. We have fun with it and we often show fun fashion photography. We showed a woman in an incredible satoir and a green dress for the month of August for the Peridot birthday. The woman herself was a Peridot in the dress. It was wonderful. And so we do a lot of that and we actually sell off our Instagram. So, I mean, all of these platforms are important right now. I do believe there is still value in having a bricks and mortar store because for us, especially as early in this business compared to many others who are fifth generation, et cetera, people will walk in there and it's a source of new business for us because our boutique is so different from anything else on Newbury Street that, and it really makes an impression. And so I feel like for us, my husband likes to say we're firing on all cylinders. And so that is something that we're going to continue to do. And what was the future? Because the boutique is one year, the digital presence, everything you've just outlined seems like, sounds like the perfect plan for a retailer if they want to be successful in a vintage jewelry, um, seeing the digital, the, the Zoom consultations, like the fun social media and the depth of information that you provide to your clients. What, what's next for you? What do you see as the next stage of Tina Smith's jewelry? Well, I think, you know, we're going to continue to build upon the successes that we've had. And we're always looking for new opportunities. But opportunities right now in COVID are more limited than before. But we are going to plan more interesting educational events in the gallery. When we have Michelle Finnemore come in October, we're only allowed to have a certain number of people in the gallery. So we're doing four openings so that we can accommodate the number of people because we're going to be abiding by strict COVID regulations. But we want to do more educational events in the gallery. They're fun. People enjoy them. They're interesting. There's no pressure to buy. And I just love doing that myself because education was such a big part of my life. Also maintaining the level of the collection by continuously looking for additional treasures. That is something that you've got to maintain the level of the collection. You've got to offer things that aren't available elsewhere. And that takes a lot of time looking and looking and looking. And all the pieces that we buy really are joined by this feminine aesthetic that we have. We value pieces that show colored stones. We value intricate designs, things where there's like classic with a twist, like something that looks like it could be very classic, but maybe Cartier made the piece in Bombay form. So it's more three-dimensional. 
or the proportions are unusual and that in of itself makes the piece, you know, a wow piece. So we're always looking. And finally, we want to share what we have with more like-minded people. So we want to be able to share, you know, our excitement and our, you know, incredible collection with other people that can enjoy it. That sounds great. And what about a lot of our listeners are retailers that might not be in a vintage jewelry business yet. What would you recommend them to get started in terms of brands and periods to to have in a store? I mean, I know you do 20th century, 21st. Art Deco seems to be always, always popular, but what, what else would you suggest? Well, I mean, I think it really depends on where their interests lie, because I think that you always do better with something that you love and you want to learn about. So for me, it's the 20th and 21st century. You know, we own Van Cleef, Tiffany, Harry Winston, David Webb, Van Cleef, on and on. But, you know, there are people that are interested in earlier jewelry, you know, the Art Nouveau period in the very beginning of the 1900s or even before that, the Victorian period. So it really, I mean, I think that whatever period you choose, whatever excites you, whatever, you know, because history was different. Maybe there's something about the history of like the early 1900s that excites somebody, then they should take that on, but really make sure that you know it. Make sure you know it. Make sure that you can source top-notch jewelry and own it. That's my best advice. That Whatever you choose, and there are a lot of choices in the vintage jewelry area, make sure that you do it right. Sounds good. And what about at the moment? What's in your gallery that, and a jewel that you found particularly fascinating, that you're very excited about, and that you would like to wear? I'm sure you could tell me that you would like to wear every single piece in your gallery because you chose them and you cherish them, but is there a specific jewel at the moment that you're really excited about? So, so many. I mean, we are probably the only jeweler that has a four-piece Cartier bamboo suite in 18 karat yellow gold with diamonds. And so I love the way that Cartier makes the pieces look almost real with the joints of the bamboo and you know, the beautiful proportionality and the wearability of a suite like that, that can be one piece at a time or two or all four together. And I think it's rare that we own all four pieces. I also love the, we have a trio of Van Cleef B brooches. They're actually little pins. Van Cleef did a lot of insect jewelry, including butterfly, dragonfly, and bees. But we've never before seen a trio of bees, and this trio is delightful. They come in in unsuspecting materials. The bodies are well-saturated ruby cabochons. The heads are blue sapphires cabochons, and the wings are sprinkled with diamonds. And they're just so wearable. You know, you can wear one at a time or all together. Your spouse could wear one, and you could wear one, and that trio is also a rare find. And so I think it's very, and bees in many cultures stand for, you know, good luck and work ethic and many positive things. And so they're good luck and we're happy to have them. Seems exquisite. And Tina, thank you so much. We've covered a lot and I'm happy that you shared so much. And I think there was so many strong insights into into the business of vintage jewelry. Before we close this podcast, I would like to ask you, because before being a vintage jewelry dealer, you were a collector. 
So in your personal collection, which I'm sure is as exquisite as everything you show in your gallery, what, what is your favorite piece, your personal piece that you cherish? That's a very hard question. It's like, but... I know, it's like choosing your children. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will say that I have a pair of unsigned, hugely extravagant a diamond flower earrings that are rose cut petals of the diamonds are rose cut. The diamonds themselves are D color and they have a little pink diamond center. And even though they're unsigned, and I always say you should be buying signed jewelry because it holds its value better. For me, because I'm not selling it and just because I love it, which is really what we want people to do is mostly love their jewelry and not think of it as an investment. I love wearing them. When I put them on, my face lights up and I love them. But I have to tell you that I recently had Oscar Heyman make me a ring out of an eight carat light pink antique cushion cut stone that was cut more than a hundred years ago that's type 2A. And I work with Tom Heyman all the time and I looked at a lot of different designs, but eventually came down to the simplest of all, which they did a beautiful job with a thin shank that that totally makes the diamond shine and they put diamonds in the shank in a way that I've never seen anybody do, but probably only Oscar Heyman can do so that it doesn't look pave, it looks abundant. And I just love that. So that may be my new favorite piece. Both the earrings and the rings sound absolutely magnificent. There's, and I, I love how your passion for jewelry and, and vintage jewelry has, has turned into a new stage in your career. I think that's... Uh, that's really, really inspirational for people who are not fifth generation who are coming, you know, who want to join this world, really. So thank you so much, Tina. Really appreciate your time this morning and sharing you, your insights with us. I'm delighted. And I also just want to say I'm always happy to have people reach out to me if they have questions, if they're getting into the business and they would like to talk to me about something or a certain aspect of it. I'm always delighted to share what I know and lend a helping hand to others because people did it for me. And it's one of the reasons that I got to where I am now. So thank you so much, Sonia, for your time and for having me today. And I look forward to meeting you in person sometime soon. I hope so. I really, I can't wait to visit your your gallery and anyone who's in Boston. So I would really encourage you to go to Tina Smith's Jewelry especially any time, but during the beautiful exhibition that's going to take place from the 1st of October through the end of November. And there's the website and the social media as well that you can visit. We'll give all the information on the blog. And Tina, have a wonderful day and hopefully we'll meet very soon. Thank you, Sonia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the end of this new episode of Jury Connoisseur podcast. You can visit juryconnoisseur.net if you want to learn more about vintage jewelry, if you want to read an article about this podcast and more about color gemstones, diamonds, and a book that we recommend to further your knowledge and understanding of vintage jewelry. Thanks for joining us at the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast. If you enjoyed this and would like more top quality jewelry content, check out the Jewelry Connoisseur blog at jewelryconnoisseur.net. 